Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there. You're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Professor Daniel Byman, a professor at Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a senior advisor to the U.S. Department of State on the International Security Advisory Board. He's a widely published and globally recognized expert on terrorism. His most recent books include Spreading Hate, The Global Wise of White Supremacist Terrorism, and A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism. Our conversation is divided into two parts. The first part, which is this episode, we discuss the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And we go through some history as to who Hamas is and why they attacked Israel on the 7th of October 2023. We discuss the Israeli response. But then we also broaden out the conversation and draw the connections between that conflict and other conflicts that are around the world and explore whether or not there is a possibility of it expanding to a bigger regional conflict or indeed a world war. This is a really important conversation that Professor Reimann and I have, and I really encourage you to listen to the entire thing. So please now enjoy my conversation with Professor Daniel Byman. Professor Byman, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Could we start with the conflict between Israel and Hamas? I want to try and get ourselves into a situation where we can get everybody onto the same page in terms of What's caused this? What's really going on and, and what the effects of it are? Um, so let's start, if we could, with with Hamas. Could we really start with the basics of kind of understanding who they are? What is Hamas? Who is Hamas? So Hamas is a, an Islamist organization that is historically based um, among the Palestinian people and very strong in Gaza. It grows out of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the oldest political Islamist organization in the Arab world, um, and really starts to become uh, much stronger after Israel takes over Gaza in the 1967 war. And the Brotherhood there um, has more freedom under Israel, ironically, because the Egyptian government had seen it as a threat. Uh, it begins to develop very deep social networks through mosques, through educational institutions, through social welfare. Um, and then in 1987, as the first intifada is raging, the Brotherhood declares itself to be Hamas. And instead of being an apolitical organization focused on social welfare, it becomes a very political one dedicated to what it would call resistance to, through the use of force, um, ending the what it sees as the Israeli occupation of all of Palestine. Um, and I would stress a few things about Hamas. Um, one is it's both religious and nationalist. So there's often an attempt to kind of categorize it as one or the other. Um, and it's very much Palestinian. It sees itself as focused on liberating Palestinians, not as liberating Syrians or Egyptians. Um, at the same time, though, it wants a particular type of government. 
it wants an Islamist government. And when it's been in power in Gaza, it's pushed in this direction. And how long has Hamas been in power? So Hamas um, wins Palestinian elections in 2006. And uh, there's a kind of power dispute in Gaza between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, which is in charge in the West Bank. And in 2007, Hamas seizes power there. So it's been in power um, uh, almost 17 years. And does that have the general support of the Palestine population? So yes and no. Uh, so polls taken just before the October 7th attack showed that Hamas had about 30% support. And that, that sounds low, but I'd point out a few things. Uh, first of all, 30% is a lot of people. But even more importantly, um, Hamas's rivals, the Palestinian Authority and others, had even less support. So I wouldn't say Hamas has huge support, but I wouldn't say anyone has more support than Hamas. The nature of their power, were they democratically elected? And are subsequent elections similar in nature to a democratic process, or, or do they take an alternative route? So there's a bit of both here. Um, when Hamas um, initially assumes power, it had won the 2006 uh, Palestinian elections. And to be clear, it had won a plurality, not a majority, but again, its opposition was weak and disorganized. Um, at the same time, there haven't been subsequent elections. Uh, Hamas is very repressive in Gaza. So in terms of its legitimacy, it reaches back to the 2006 elections, but it hasn't had subsequent elections that would enable Palestinians in Gaza or Palestinians in general to vote to either continue or remove it. Okay, so in spite of that, it still has 30% of the population supporting its, its uh, position. That's, that's correct. And um, you know, so part of that may be because Hamas has delivered services. Part of it may be some form of patronage. Part of it may be belief in Hamas's ideology. Uh, but it seems to have a, a significant core of Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and I'd point out, um, in the West Bank, its support has soared since October 7th that the um, attack on Israel, the release of some Palestinian prisoners, and what, what many Palestinians see as accomplishments uh, have increased its credibility. Why do you think that is? So I think it's useful to contrast Hamas with its rival, the Palestinian Authority. And the Palestinian Authority was um, created as part of the Oslo peace process in the 1990s, um, and it was meant to be the embryo of a broader Palestinian government that would coexist with Israel as part of the two-state solution that I and I think many others thought was, you know, was in the cards or at least quite possible in the 1990s. Um, instead, the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas has several significant problems. Um, first of all, uh, it also doesn't have democratic legitimacy. There haven't been uh, real elections that have enabled Palestinians in the West Bank or elsewhere to vote. Um, it is seen as highly corrupt, and uh, its leaders are seen as primarily there to you know, take money, um, not to serve Palestinians. It's rather poor at delivering services um, in terms of things like trash collection or law and order. Um, its leaders are old and part of a generation that was often linked to when Palestinians were based in exile, and many do not have 
significant connections uh, to Palestinian communities in the West Bank. Uh, but add to all of this, Israeli policy has significantly undermined the uh, Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority made a bet on peace negotiations and said the way we're going to get a Palestinian state is by negotiating with Israel. Um, putting aside October 7th, uh, Palestinians seem farther away from that uh, than ever. If you're a Palestinian in the West Bank and you're see seeing settlements being built on a daily basis, you're seeing the Israeli army come in and do raids um, against Palestinians with no interference. You're seeing settlers do pogroms against Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, and you're also seeing the Palestinian Authority police seem to act as a gendarme for Israel. Um, you're going to have some questions about the credibility of your own regime. Um, and as a result, this combination of kind of corruption and competence and being seen as an Israeli puppet has grossly undermined the Palestinian Authority. Um, and current polls show that about 90% of Palestinians think Abbas should resign. Um, and so when we think about Hamas, what Hamas has done stands in sharp contrast. Um, instead of negotiating, it attacked Israel. Um, it attacked Israel successfully. Right? It inflicted grievous harm on Israel. Um, and Israel has had to make some concessions, even as it's conducted a very ferocious military campaign. Um, Israel has released Palestinian prisoners um, to exchange for Israeli prisoners that Hamas has taken. Um, and uh, thus, Palestinians can say Hamas is accomplishing something. So I think it's in part about what Hamas has done has um, inspired people in many ways to say, aha, we're striking back. But a lot of it is about the weakness of the alternative to Hamas. Okay, that's very clear. So let's move to the very, very significant attacks on Israel on October the, the 7th. Why did Hamas do that? There's a lot we still don't know about the October 7th attacks uh, three months in. So what I'm going to say, to be clear, is, is pretty speculative. So if you're looking at Israel from the perspective of Hamas and Gaza, I would highlight a few things. Um, first of all, there's genuine ideological hostility. You know, the Hamas leaders in Gaza see Israel as an illegitimate state. They see it as a repressive state. They see it as an enemy. And attacking and hurting an enemy is a good thing. So that was, if you will, a constant. And to put my political science hat on, you can't explain change with a constant. But that foundation is a very important beginning to all this. Um, they also, in my view, felt somewhat trapped in Gaza, that they were not um, allowed due to Israeli and international pressure to freely govern Gaza. There were a lot of restrictions economically and otherwise. Um, and thus, their ability to deliver for Palestinians in a government sense was limited. Um, and at the same time, they hadn't done much from a military point of view for many years. And they'd even stood on the sides while a rival group, Islamic Jihad, had fought Israel. Um, and they were losing some of their credentials in what they would call resistance. So either way, whether it's through government or through resistance, Palestinians were looking at them and saying they're not delivering. Um, and internationally, it looked like the Arab world was turning its back on the Palestinians. A number of states, the UAE, Bahrain, others had made peace with Israel through the Abraham Accords. Saudi Arabia seemed to be moving in that direction. Um, and there was a sense uh, that many people had that the Palestinian issue was, was yesterday's news. And Hamas is funded, armed, supported by Iran. I don't think Iran controls Hamas, to be clear. 
but Iran's position matters. And Iran was internationally isolated and would much prefer the regional discussion be about how bad Israel is and how bad its U.S. sponsor is than about Iranian support for, say, the brutal Syrian regime. So there are a lot of different factors, I would say, encouraging Hamas to try to break out of its situation in Gaza and Israel. Um, and it developed a, a very successful plan. And there is a, also a question, which is part of why it may have decided to attack on October 7th was that the plan itself was ready. And every day they spent waiting or delaying meant every day Israeli intelligence had a chance to um, act and disrupt the plan. So uh, part of the logic of October 7th may have been we're ready to go. You know, it's used or to lose it. Um, so that's another possibility that I think is worth considering. I was going to ask you about the trigger, whether there is anything significant about the date or a trigger for it being, you know, why now is the question. Is it simply a case of they were ready, so therefore they did? Um, uh, that's my personal guess. Uh, some people have said there may be symbolic significance tied to the 1973 war. Um, I personally don't see much of a Hamas connection to that war. Um, it was also over an Israeli holiday period which meant that many Israelis were at home with families and otherwise not prepared for Hamas attack. So um, it's possible that you know the particular days um, may have been seized on because they thought Israel would be especially vulnerable then, which which is true. Now let's let's build on the uh, the Israeli perspective now on these attacks. So the narrative that I've I've heard kind of two narratives in the press um, and other things that I've read. So one is that they were completely caught out by this they were surprised but i've also seen commentary that said that they were monitoring the situation they did know that some pre-planning was taking place so what's what is the situation so so were they taken by surprise and if they were how is that possible um do you think and if they weren't taken surprise why why wouldn't they have acted uh, to to try to stop it so one of the stunning things that's emerged since October 7th is both the extent of the surprise, um, yet the extent of Israel's success in collecting information on Hamas. And that, that seems like uh, a contradiction, so let me, let me try to explain. Um, Israel, Israeli intelligence intercepted the actual Hamas war plan. So they knew exactly how Hamas planned to attack, and you'd think that would be an incredible success. Um, in addition, there were um, Israeli monitors on the border who were spying on Hamas and saying, hey, there's stuff going on that looks like they're planning to attack. So you had both a general overall plan and you had individuals saying, now is the time, right? Something's going on this week that's significant. Um, and both those were ignored. Uh, and part of it was what people who've looked at intelligence failures in Israel um, in 73, referred to as the concept, right? So that there's a fundamental idea or understanding of Hamas, which was that Hamas recognizes that an attack won't work. It won't be in Hamas's interest. They'll be hit extremely hard. Um, and therefore, they won't do it. And when you know that, everything else is interpreted in that light, right? So if you know they're not going to attack and you get a report saying they have an attack plan, you say, well, you know, it's a plan. And you know, I'm sure somewhere on the shelf, the U.S. has a battle plan for invading Canada, right, from, you know, some year. And it's not serious and no one's ever going to do it. So don't, don't worry about it. 
And so when these reports would come up, military commanders would say, don't worry about it. Um, Israel also had other significant threats. So it's constantly concerned about the Lebanese Hezbollah, um, which is an extremely formidable organization. So it was deploying a lot of assets and attention there. Um, and again, even before October 7th, the situation in the West Bank was getting worse and worse, and Israel was deploying more and more force there. So Israel was distracted in terms of what was uh, focusing on, um, and there was a general sense of disbelief. But the result was really a catastrophic surprise from an Israeli point of view, that um, you know intelligence was not prepared for this at all. The military um, did not have significant forces in the south. And my guess is one of the surprises for Hamas was having penetrated the security barrier between Israel and Gaza, how easy it was to go forward, that they thought that they would be hit harder by Israel, hit sooner by Israel, that they would encounter far more police and especially soldiers. Um, and Hamas was able to attack an Israeli military base nearby and paralyze the Israeli response um, and really spent many hours before there was any coherent Israeli response. And for those listeners who have been to the area, you know how small it is, right? So ours is significant in terms of the ability of Hamas to travel and go to various towns and um, other areas, um, take hostages and kill people. And so the surprise was quite real um, and quite stunning, even though, again, the joy of hindsight with the benefit of hindsight is they, Israel had a lot of information that should have enabled it to predict the problem. Now, I've also heard and read other commentary around the impact on the psyche of Israeli society. This is such a significant attack that killed so many people and was seemingly so a complete surprise. Um, and some people have drawn parallels with 9-11 as well, I think. I don't know whether that's a fair or, a, or, or an accurate comparison in terms of the, 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 the impact it would have on the psyche of a nation when something like this happens. So from a Israeli society's perspective, what has been beyond the kind of the, the kind of obvious and understandable reaction of shock and horror and, and, and all the things that come with that, what has been the effect, do you think, on society in, in Israel? So I think the 9-11 comparison is after, and I would even say a much bigger impact. And right after the attack, President Biden made a comparison saying, um, in terms of relative casualties to population, it would be as if about 40,000 Americans had died on 9-11. And I think everyone knows how strongly the U.S. reacted because 3,000 Americans died. And so, you know, imagine that much more uh, strongly. And in addition, imagine in the U.S. context that the attack had come from, you know, Quebec just across the border rather than far away Afghanistan. Um, but in addition to the death toll, the worst um, day for in Jewish history since the Holocaust, in addition to that dramatic death toll, um, was the way in which people died. Uh, we've seen more and more reporting over the last few months uh, that talk about um, you know, very broad sexual um, uh, crimes, um, rape and so on. Uh, we've seen torture. We've seen um, attacks that have killed children. And so there was a real sense among Israelis that this wasn't simply you know, like October 1973, where you had a foreign military attacking the Israeli military, but that this was a deliberate attack meant to um, kill or harm 
lots of non-combatants and you know children and the elderly taken as captives. Um, lots of reports continue today that those women who are in Gaza are being um, sexually assaulted. Right, so three months in, so that the nature of the death as well as the scale of the death was huge. Um, in addition, going back to the intelligence surprise, um, there was an assumption among Israelis that the intelligence services will detect any problem, and if there is a problem, the military will handle it. And so there is much less confidence in institutions. Um, and to me, this is showing up in at least two ways, and it'll probably show up in a hundred different ways. But let me let me highlight two. Um, the first is you have lots of Israelis who are displaced from the areas near Gaza, but also near the northern border with Hezbollah. And they are afraid of an attack, a repeat of something like October 7th. But what I would stress is in the past, the government could have said, don't worry, we'll protect you. And now it's very hard for the government to make that claim credibly. Uh, the second thing shows up in the civilian casualties in Gaza. Um, Israel um, says it's going through different um, kind of measures to um, protect civilians in Gaza, and there's a um, you know, real questions about uh, proportionality and so on that have been raised. But the Israeli willingness to say there is a military target here, whether it's a tunnel or Hamas commander, and we're going to hit it even if it kills a lot of civilians. Um, I think is much higher than previous conflicts, and it was often high in previous conflicts. So uh, from Israel's point of view, there's almost no political voice within Israel saying, worry about Palestinian civilian casualties. Right? I think that there are the vast majority of Israelis, even people who would have been on the political left, are saying, we don't care. Right? Some may be saying worse than that, but many are saying we don't care. And to me, the kind of the psychological impact of October 7th shows up in this. Sorry to interrupt. Please give me 30 seconds of your time. You're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please rate and follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you so much. Now, back to the episode. And let's move on then to the Israel response. What's the thinking behind it? What do you think the game plan is? So Israel has promised to destroy Hamas. Um, and that sounds good. And if I were an Israeli, that's what I would certainly want because of the nature of October 7th and the feeling that you really can't go back to a status quo ante. You can't simply say, you yeah, know, we heard Hamas, but, you know, they're back in their box. Don't worry. Uh, but destroying Hamas is exceptionally difficult. Um, going back to our initial discussion, uh, Hamas um, has been the government of Gaza for um, almost 17 years. Um, in addition, it has um, educational, social welfare, and religious institution ties that go back many decades before that. So getting rid of Hamas is an exceptionally difficult task. It has 25,000 to 30,000 fighters under arms. And um, even if Israel kills half of them or three quarters of them, the remainder could simply uh, take power. Um, in the past, Israel has killed many Hamas leaders, but it hasn't wiped out the organization. If we think of Hamas as an ideology, the idea of violent resistance to Israel um, may actually be stronger because Palestinians are understandably outraged by the Israeli response and the number of dead Palestinian civilians. Um, and in my view, a lot of the hope of 
um, uh, the future for Gaza would be finding an alternative government for Hamas. But here we have very bad options. Right? There's no easy, obvious replacement, um, whether internationally or in the Palestinian community, to take Hamas's place. And um, you know, one of the joys of being a professor is, you know, if you give me an option, I'll tell you why it's not going to work. But something needs to take Hamas's place in order to have a different government in Gaza, in order to change the threat picture. Um, and that, to me, is the biggest challenge and the one we're farthest away from. It, it seems to me that from a layperson's perspective, of which I would definitely categorize myself as one of those in, in on this topic, that this is... I, I can't even conceive how this is going to play out and how this is going to come to a sensible conclusion. From your perspective, what does the future look like? How can this be reconciled, if at all? And if it can't be reconciled, then what does it look like? What does what does the conclusion of this look like? Or what are the various avenues that one might want to go down or go down? So I don't have even a bad answer for this. So I'll throw out a few possibilities and you know, we can see which direction things go in. Uh, so uh, the first is that uh, at some point, some point in the next few months, um, Israel declares the high-intensity military operations over. And there's more rebuilding of Gaza, um, sponsored by supportive Arab states and the international community. Uh, but Israel is keeping its military either in Gaza or on the borders and doing near-constant raids against Hamas figures. So it's always trying to disrupt Hamas, keep it off balance. Um, and at the same time, I'll say the Palestinian Authority or some Palestinian entity comes in with international support, with Israeli military support, and begins to administer Gaza. Um, that entity will have huge legitimacy problems. It'll be hard for it to function in general. Um, it and the Israeli forces will face attacks from Hamas. But that's one possibility. Um, another is a continued Israeli um, military occupation, where Israel effectively sits on Gaza, tries to crush Hamas, um, and in so doing faces a low-level insurgency. But Israelis say it's worth it, right? We will take casualties, we will pay the price of this, um, and we will do so because we know what happened on October 7th. Now, I think based primarily on the U.S. experience that there may be support today, but whether there be support for that in two years or three years or five years, I'm more skeptical. I think over time that diminishes. Um, yet another possibility is uh, that there's really just chaos in Gaza. And again, Israel's doing raids. It builds a barrier that's even bigger. It has effectively a DMZ on the borders. That's a kill zone where nothing's getting through. Um, and, you know, there are aid trucks going in, but Gaza is a basket case dependent every day on whether UN, uh, World Food Program, um, aid trucks get through or not. And so all these, in my view, are pretty grim. Um, what I'm going to say is politically impossible right now in Israel, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, I think the path forward is actually trying to empower the Palestinian Authority, um, including on the West Bank that there, for the sake of Israeli security, there needs to be legitimate uh, Palestinian uh, political entities. And that in turn requires um, Israel to reduce settlements, Israel to crack down on Jewish violence in the West Bank and to promote the Palestinian Authority's um, legitimacy. Um, again, easy to say for my perch in Washington, 
But to me, that's the, the real hope for something lasting out of this. And you've mentioned Hezbollah a few times during this conversation. Where do they, do they fit into the dynamic here? So Hezbollah is Israel's most formidable foe. Uh, it has a rocket and missile arsenal that dwarfs the size of Hamas's. Um, it has um, several thousand highly trained fighters that are much more dangerous than their Hamas equivalents. Uh, now, Israel has been you know, not underestimated this threat. This is something, in fact, I worry that Israel might even do a preventive war because it's so concerned about the Hezbollah threat. Um, but Israel has very much focused on this threat. Um, and Hezbollah, like Hamas, believes Israel is illegitimate. Um, Hezbollah is also uh, sponsored by Iran, and in Hezbollah's case, much closer to Iran. Uh, in my view, Hezbollah has held off. I should back up. Um, Hezbollah has done limited military operations against Israel since October 7th. They've done some rocket and missile attacks, um, some, uh, fired some anti-tank weapons across the border, um, supported Palestinian groups under their control for infiltrations. But all this has been to show solidarity with Hamas, not to create an all-out war. And Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah and others, have been pretty clear that they don't want an all-out war. And I would say this is for three reasons. Uh, so the first reason is that um, Hezbollah has constituencies in Lebanon, and it looks at Gaza and says, we don't want the areas where the people that support us to look like Gaza, right? Gaza is a moonscape right now. And we, we care about these people. Uh, the second is Iran wants Hezbollah at least semi-intact. Uh, in case things escalate between, say, the United States and Iran or Israel and Iran, that it doesn't want the Hezbollah card played too soon and it wants it in reserve so that the U.S. knows that, say, if the U.S. attacks Iran's nuclear program, that Hezbollah can respond. And the third reason is the situation is actually pretty good for Hezbollah right now, that world attention is on Israel and what much of the world sees as Israeli atrocities. Um, there is a narrative of resistance that is much stronger than it was before October 7th. Um, and Hezbollah's people are not dying in large numbers. So Hezbollah gets the benefit of the struggle and gets the benefit of association with Hamas, but is not paying the cost that Palestinians are paying. Okay, so I want to bring this to a wider geographic level now. So there are other conflicts that are happening in the world, obviously notably Russia and Ukraine. Um, but there are, which is clearly a hot, hot war, hot conflict. Um, but there are other kind of conflicts that are not hot, but they are conflicts in nature. And, and people talk about US and China and various other states that have disagreements of some of, of varying degrees. Now, do could these conflicts start to connect either regionally within the Middle East or expanding to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine or between US and China or any other of the various conflicts that are happening around the world today. I think people are generally worried about whether this could spread into a broader, bigger war. I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, right now, the actual conflicts are not connected in a direct sense, but there are a lot of indirect connections. 
so one is a broader question of um, what principles are at stake. So many countries in the global south are looking at this conflict and saying, um, Russia attacks Ukraine, and the United States says the world should rally in the name of self-determination against an oppressive occupying power. Um, and when they look at Israel-Gaza, they see Israel as Russia. And so they're looking at this conflict and saying the U.S. is being hypocritical. Now, the U.S. has a very different argument, as I think uh, most of your listeners know. But nevertheless, that perception is real among uh, many audiences. Um, there's also a question of resources from an American point of view. Uh, I would say President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden didn't agree on much. But one thing they did agree on was that the United States should try to be out of the Middle East as much as possible and focus more on places like China. And um, the United States is in the Middle East, and even more so after October 7th. And whether it's a question of providing artillery rounds to Israel or just the attention of the United States and the Secretary of State um, and other senior leaders, um, the United States can't do everything everywhere all at once. So uh, there's a competition in resources among different theaters. Now, the U.S., you know, is a superpower. It has a lot of capability. So I don't want to overstate this, but it's worth pointing out that when the United States is pulled in one direction, there are issues in another. Um, I would point out, though, you could also make the opposite point um, in terms of if the U.S. were passive. If the U.S. were doing nothing, many people would say, well, let's look to countries like China that maybe can deliver instead of the United States. So there's a damned if you do, damned if you don't quality um, to U.S. engagement. Um, and there's also a question of um, perceptions in terms of how countries like China and Russia look at different conflicts and whether when they look at these, they see U.S. strength or weakness and how that shapes their more local and regional concerns. Now, I don't want to oversell this. I don't want to make it sound like the U.S. defense of Taiwan depends on how the United States responds to Hamas. But I do think broader questions of whether the United States will be defending allies, whether the United States will be active in trying to shape the world, um, do go from one region to another. And so, again, I don't want to say that all these conflicts are directly connected, but I do see many indirect connections. And what are the most? Who are the most important actors here? So, from a from a country perspective, obviously we have U.S., we have Israel, we have Russia, we have Ukraine, we have China, we may have others as well. But some some countries are clearly not involved in these discussions or in these in these conflicts. But some seem to show up in different forms in different in different conflicts. So, who are the main players? So this is an interesting question, and there are countries in Asia, uh, let's highlight, for example, Australia, that you know have always been there as military allies of the United States, right? So wherever U.S. soldiers have fought, Australian soldiers have fought by their sides. But when it comes to something like the containment of China, Australia is front and center, right? tremendously important. Um, there are other allies, you know, Japan, South Korea, that are important democratic and industrial states with powerful militaries that are also vital here. Um, there are questions, though, uh, when we think about China is, will a lot of um, any conflict actually be economic? And so one thing that at least I learned and maybe others learned from the 2022 uh, Russian invasion was how powerful it can be 
if the United States and its allies are working from a single piece of paper when it comes to economic pressure. Um, but as hard as this was against Russia in 2022, China is much harder. And it has massive investments around the world. It has massive uh, trading ties. And so when we think about economic pressure on China, this is a global effort, right? And this is the world's leading economies, right? The, you know, Germany, the United Kingdom, Canada, all these become tremendously important uh, countries as well as leading um, economies in Asia. Um, when we are talking about uh, the dispute with Israel, um, Israel likes to think of itself as a Western power. So even though from a military point of view and from a diplomatic point of view, the United States is really front and center in terms of what matters to Israel, um, it does care about European opinion. Uh, and it you know, likes to see itself and claim that it is you know, on the side of civilized democratic countries um, against countries like Iran. So when someone like you know, the French President Macron initially sides very strongly with Israel, that's a tremendous boost, but now he's become much more critical. Um, and that does matter in Israel. I don't want to say it's the sort of thing that, you know, bad words from Macron will change Israeli policy overnight, but it does matter in terms of how Israel sees itself in the world today. And the various conflicts and, you know, the the narrative which I've heard before, which is containment of China or, or words to that effect, is this not part of a bigger world order change? that has happened in the past, which some people are saying is actually taking place today where you're seeing a gradual decline of the status of America being replaced by China and possibly India at a later stage and then possibly even African states, some African states at a later stage after that, where the balance of power in the world is just shifting into a, into a rather than a single, single major power, you have two or maybe three um, countries with similar standing in the world, both economically, militarily, and resources-wise and influence and impact-wise. So these things, so back to the question, are these things not part of something much bigger, or am I extrapolating too much? Uh, it's certainly possible. So I, I think um, when we talk about kind of broader power shifts in the world, there's no question, of course, that the rise of China is is one of the most dramatic events um, in the last 20 years. Um, there are big questions on China's economy and, and frankly, demographics. I saw a projection the other day that by 2100, China's population will be 500 billion, so a third the size almost of its current population and what that means for its ability to develop a military and project power. Um, you know, Africa, obviously, that's where the population um, of the world is shifting in terms of proportions. But uh, how much of that will be tied to um, industrial and informational power is, is to me, an open question. Uh, but yes, we're in a world where the United States, you know, in contrast to the mid-1990s, cannot simply say, well, you know, what should America do and then go do it? There are a lot more actors. I would say America, from, a, from an American point of view, um, has always been more selective when it's worked through allies. And this was true, you know, in 1946 at the height of American relative power around the globe. And it's certainly true today. And I, I praise the Biden administration for, in its Ukraine policy, trying to work with an array of European allies, in its China policy, trying to develop alliances there. Uh, but when we look around the world, 
uh, whether it's Africa or South Asia, the United States has to think not just in terms of its interests, but which countries will work with it, and, and, and frankly, what concessions might be necessary from an American point of view uh, to ensure that cooperation. It's difficult to comprehend how it's all going to play out in, in reality because there's everything's so connected now, even more so than it was before. I was on another podcast conversation I met with Professor Mara Guillen of the Wharton School, and he was talking as an example of how the birth rate in China affected the value of the US dollar. Uh, because of the the savings rates uh, in U.S. dollar dim, dim, uh, dominated uh, currency, uh, was would mean that Chinese people would repatriate the money back into the Chinese economy as they had to look after the the older population. So it was an interesting example of lateral thinking, which he was trying to illustrate at the point. But I think the nature of the world now connected through things like that, through um, trade agreements, economies are so intrinsically connected that um, it feels like a future that is difficult to map out. Yes, I think, I mean, it's an incredibly complex system. Right? And you have the possibility for individual actors to cause dramatic changes, right? Um, you know, how much of China's policy is tied to one man, right? And, and I don't know that, I'm certainly not a specialist on China. But that question always comes up. We could say the same with Russia. Um, I actually think it's very important to highlight the uncertainty regarding the United States. And it's not only what I think many people focus on, which is the differences between President Biden and President Trump, and President Trump may, may win the next US election. But more broadly, if you go back to the uh, 2020 election, uh, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders was almost the Democratic nominee uh, for president. And so you had, uh, you would have had two nominees that both rejected traditional U.S. precepts for foreign policy. And I have no idea who's going to win the next election, let alone the next three elections. But I can easily imagine a very different um, set of administrations and policies uh, coming in and then being followed by 180 degrees different as well. And that uncertainty to me is uh, going to be a major factor in shaping or perhaps unraveling parts of the global order. There's a quote that I, I think is falsely attributed to Churchill, which is that you can always count on America to do the right thing after exhausting all the other options. And um, assuming that's true, that the United States is going to be engaged globally, um, is something that is has shaped perceptions uh, since, I would say, the end of World War II. Um, but that's a question mark today. And I think that both allies and adversaries are going to have to adjust to a very different America. Absolutely. And we've also have, I don't know, America of obvious importance, but we have almost half of the world's population going through an election, I think, this year, this year alone, with, with different options available to each of those populations. I mean, it could be a very, very different world at the end of this year than it, than it is at the beginning from a political perspective, which clearly will affect each of the nation's responses to all of these various things that we've been talking about so far. Absolutely. This has been an incredibly interesting conversation, incredibly useful conversation. Um, so thank you for explaining what are complex and sensitive issues in such a clear and concise way. I think it's an important uh, that as many of us as possible understand the things that are going on in the world and, and can get the right context as to what is actually happening and the reasons for those things. Um, 
So, Professor Daniel Byman, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow it on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.